This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. While many Australian politicians had their sights set on a career in Canberra from an early age, my guest today had never imagined becoming a Member of Parliament. In fact, it's one of the last things she thought she'd end up doing. Helen Hayes is a proud rural and regional woman and currently the only Member of Federal Parliament with a background in midwifery. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. In our conversation today, independent MP and federal member for Indi, Helen Haynes, explains how her desire to be an active and useful member of her rural community led her down the unexpected path of politics. She opens up about the process of getting elected and why she's so passionate about issues of climate change, integrity and making our democracy work for everyone. Before we begin our conversation today, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. For me, it's Bangarin country, northeast Victoria. I'm based in the town of Wangaratta. I want to pay my respects to elders past and present. I want to acknowledge 60,000 plus years of continuous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and to say how honoured I am uh, when I meet and encounter Aboriginal people in my community and I'm so grateful to them for their generosity and for their patience, for their science, art and learning. Thank you, Helen. And I'm on Camaragal land and I pay my respects to elders of this area too, past, present and emerging, and feel so privileged to live in a place that is just so beautiful and has been looked after for millennia. Helen Haynes, it's such a pleasure to have you on here today. I almost don't know where to start because you've had such a varied background. You're the member for Indian Victoria and you've been in the House of Reps since 2019. But you had a really interesting career before you entered politics. You completed a Bachelor of Nursing and then a PhD in Medical Science. You've served on numerous boards as chair and as a director. Some people might listen to that and wonder why you entered politics. <laughs> I think, Shirley, uh, one point in my CV that, that wasn't there in that lovely introduction was that I am a rural and regional woman. And I grew up on a dairy farm in a very small place with just a tiny school and a tennis court and a very wonderful connected community. Like many kids on a farm, I experienced the elements as a, a young person helping my parents, contributing to farm work, understanding when we were in drought and when we were having a good season. And I did what many country kids do and that's complete my schooling and head to the city for further education. So it was from that background of growing up in the country that I then found myself returning to the country when I finished my nursing and midwifery education. And I guess I just knew that when I arrived in another country area, and it was different to the one I grew up in, that I'd need to roll my sleeves up and uh, contribute and make that community the best place I could make it through whatever ever I had to offer. 
So that's pretty much what I did. And it's because I'm a rural and regional woman, I think that my career has had some interesting elements to it. I think there's many things I've done that I did because there was no one else to do them. And so I stepped in. And I guess the other thing I would say is, like many country kids and and young women in particular, I wasn't that aware of the kind of career opportunities that may be available to me. And I chose a particular path because that was something I knew about nursing. And my great aunts had been very wonderful nurses. And one of them, in fact, was a a sister of charity, a nun. And uh, she was director of nursing at the private hospital called Mount St Evans, which is now St Vincent's private part of the St Vincent's Hospital Network. I used to look at them and talk to them and they seemed to have such extraordinarily interesting lives. So when they said to me, Helen, you should be a nurse, I didn't really question it that much. And even though when I was in my final year at school, some of my teachers were trying to lead me in other directions. And in fact, I applied for a course at Melbourne Uni and was accepted there. But I felt that, no, I should really try nursing. This is what my aunts think is a really good idea. And it sounds terrific. So I did. But as you said, I've gone in other directions as well. So are you the only person with a nursing background in Parliament? Uh, Yeah, actually, no. Uh, Jed Carney, member for Cooper, is also a nurse. I understand I'm the only ever midwife, though, so I think that is a first. But Jed and I are the only two nurses in the parliament, and we're not aware of anyone who has come before us as nurses. And I think that's interesting from the whole perspective of gender balance in the parliament, actually, on lots of levels, but also knowing how many women are nurses and have been nurses since 1901 when the parliament first began, that there's only two of us now and that we're such a rare couple of birds, I suppose. It's just great diversity of thinking and diversity of experience, which we need in Canberra and in Parliament. When we go into new roles, we all have expectations about what that's going to be like. Has your time in Parliament, you've been there for about two years, has that matched your expectations of what you thought it might be like? Well, Shirley, this kind of speaks to the initial question really you know around becoming a member of parliament it absolutely was not in my life plan and I think that if something's in your life plan then you have a set of expectations that match that ambition so for me becoming a member of parliament is deeply and inextricably connected to my lifelong desire to be a useful person in a rural community And while I've always been engaged in digesting and analysing politics, and I've been very aware, particularly when I undertook my master's studies in public health and then my PhD, the impact of politics and policy on everyday people's health outcomes. So highly alert to that. I had never seen myself as someone who would be putting my hand up to run for parliament. But I did so because as a community person, I became highly engaged in seeking something better in our electorate in 2012, a group of people got together rather famously now in the Wangaratta Library in a back room and started discussing our local democracy and how we might better get involved. And that then led to the formation of Voices for Indi and then subsequently the election of the independent member, Cathy McGowan. So it was when that began, I, like many other people, said, yeah, I'd really like to help make that happen. So I rolled my sleeves up like many hundreds of other people did and did things that I felt very uncomfortable doing, like door knocking and and standing on a polling booth and talking to people about politics. So I became engaged then in a way that gave me some insight as to what it might be like to be a member of parliament. 
I subsequently, when Cathy was elected, Cathy created a Volunteers in Canberra program, which I've continued. And I went up to Canberra and spent four days as a volunteer and uh, found that fascinating and energising, but in no way thought that I would be a Member of Parliament. But it did pull back the veil, I suppose, and gave me some sense of what the job might be like. And there's no question that I would never have actually run for Parliament had I not done that program, no question at all. Yeah, so I guess I had a rather naive view from that experience, but also I had a real sense having watched Cathy do her job that this really is a job that someone who's who's experienced in working with communities and representing communities could do. And I, and I knew I had those skills. So when I got there, like the difference, I suppose, like I didn't have a lot of expectations of what it would truly be like in the parliament, but I had some expectations which have been pretty well matched, I would say, about what it's like to be a representative in the community and running an electoral office. It's a bit like running an emergency department, to be honest. Triaging constantly. Totally, yeah. I think um, there's two images that you've pulled out that really resonate with me. One, you know, the country town, the people just rolling up their sleeves, sitting in a back room somewhere saying, well, let's just fix this. I feel like that is that is who we are as a country. You know, there are so many country towns where men and women who just feel passionately about a topic roll their sleeves up and just jump in and get things done. How do we get more of those people? We've talked a lot this year about parliament and the issues in Canberra and some of that comes from a lack of diversity and a lack of representation. How do we encourage more women in particular but also people from those regions and those small towns who have a very special perspective to think about careers in politics? I think we need to see the diversity in the parliament so others can recognise themselves as being someone who could be in the parliament and many people have talked about that of course and it's so much broader than gender isn't it it's around the truest sense of diversity in order to have the confidence to even put your hand up to join a party potentially and then if, then potentially to run for pre-selection or indeed to take the kind of wacky and bold step that it is to try and run as an independent, which is even more difficult than many other things you might try, terribly difficult to get elected as an independent. It takes a certain level of confidence. Of course it does. And in order to have confidence, uh, you need to see something of yourself reflected in that place. And, and as I outlined before, for me, it was having that role model of Kathy, someone, a woman I knew in my own community who uh, had had a career very different to mine, but again, steeped in her local community. And then when I saw her take on that job and do it with such competence, I thought, yeah, okay, they're the kind of skills that can work very well in the political sphere. And, And again, I knew as someone who had been engaged in healthcare for more than 30 years that I had a pretty good capacity to communicate with people in all sorts of situations and from all sorts of walks of life. And I think that's a a really important skill for a, a Member of Parliament. You really need to be able to meet people where they're at, to engage with them in a way that is really compassionate, I think, and that recognises recognises people. You need to be able to see people. And I knew that background in healthcare would stand me in good stead. It also meant I was used to working rather long hours and also used to people not being their best selves because they're under so much pressure that they're in a difficult situation. And so often that happens as a Member of Parliament. When people finally come to meet with their Member of Parliament over an issue. They've usually tried every other thing and sometimes they're very angry or very sad 
or uh, or feeling very vulnerable. So I think my background in health really helped me. And I think there's so many people in all walks of life that would have a skill set that could lend itself to being a, a most fantastic member of parliament. We always hear about the negatives in Canberra. You know, there's always the media tends to focus on the negatives and rightly so in many cases. What are the things that have surprised you about being in Canberra as an MP that you smile at and you think, wow, that's really lovely or that works well or yeah. what are the good things? Well, I'd have to say, Shirley, being totally candid, I often smile that I am there. I'm often surprised when I see myself in the mirror. That's the truth. There's almost never a time when I'm in the House of Representatives and the Speaker gives the call, the member for Indi has the call, that I don't stand up and feel a little tickle of thrill and excitement to be the member for Indi. And with that, this enormous sense of privilege and responsibility. And that's an extraordinary feeling. And I know that it comes to so few people. You know, the fact that we've got 151 seats in the House of Representatives and we still couldn't fill it with the number of women who've had one of those seats. So... I have a sense of a place in history, which is is a great privilege. And I know that I'm only in the house because the people of Indi have given me their trust to be there. And I just take that so very seriously. And I guess along with that, I think it's a rather lovely dignity that the staff of the House of Parliament bestow upon members of Parliament. For other people to observe it, it may seem rather old-fashioned, but I see it as being so important and it does make me smile when someone opens the door, here you are, ma'am, or can I help you, ma'am? That's such a lovely call out because, I mean, Parliament House takes so many hundreds of people to keep running and we don't actually talk about those people very often, do we? It's a really lovely acknowledgement of the fact that actually whilst there are people in those roles as MPs, we need to have such respect for the offices that they hold. You know, often I think we attack the people, but we forget that actually the office demands a certain level of respect. Let's leave Canberra and uh, the Parliament House for a few minutes. You talked about your background as a farmer and growing up on country and on land. You also mentioned the respect you have for Aboriginal communities and the science that they have used for millennia. As somebody who lives on land, have you noticed a change in climate and have you noticed a change in the weather patterns that farmers have to deal with and how does that impact what you do and also people close to you and people you know who live on the land? Yeah, Shirley, absolutely I notice it and um, I I live in a wine-growing region and for many, many years our winemakers, our grape growers have told us that uh, the time of vintage has changed. Many of our substantial winemaking families have purchased land in Tasmania, for example, so that they can make the same wine varieties that they had formerly made in northeast Victoria because the climate's changed. It's quite simple. It's, it's very simple to see. Uh, I've experienced the most extraordinary change in the ferocity of bushfires. As a little girl, I grew up experiencing bushfires or there were grass fires in the in the country that I lived on. It's um, Western Plains country, so rather different to northeast Victoria. But when you live on the land, uh, when you're surrounded by farmers, when you talk about harvest times, when you talk about the impact of storms and frost uh, and heat, then uh, it's very clear that there is a change in climate. And it's the farmers, actually, that's what I find quite extraordinary when there's this, what I think is a very unhelpful 
dichotomy, a false dichotomy created by some political commentators about city and bush and that it's only inner city people sipping lattes who are worried about climate change. That couldn't be further from the truth. And uh, what country people want really is recognition that they are really at the front line of a changing climate and we need some sensible well thought through, planned response to that. And I, and I think you've only got to look to the National Farmers Federation who have quite ambitious targets around reducing our emissions more broadly and the role that agriculture can play in that. Uh, I have a dairy farming group here who've done tremendous work about dairy farming and climate action, winemakers the same. It's something that is important to me fundamentally because... I love and enjoy and want to maintain the magnificent environment that we have in Australia. And again, I I look to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have been such extraordinary custodians of the land. And, uh, you know, I want to be a person who is on the right side of history in terms of recognising what's happening and, and what we need to do to address it. And I'm also someone who can see enormous opportunity for rural and regional Australia if we get this right. Enormous opportunity. You know, right now we're in the midst of a renewable energy boom. Uh, We know that all of the renewable energy projects, whether they be large wind, solar, or indeed even hydrogen, hydrogen to a lesser extent, but wind and solar, are all being built in regional Australia. There's a real opportunity for regional Australia right now, and and I want to see this, the, the next wool boom or gold rush for regional Australia. I think it can be. Yeah, absolutely. I read an article that said that if the planet continues to warm on its current trajectory, the average six-year-old will live through roughly three times as many climate disasters as their parents. They will see twice as many wildfires, 1.7 times as many tropical cyclones, 3.4 times more river floods, 2.5 times more crop failures, and 2.3 times as many droughts as someone born in 1960. Well, there you go. Um, what a damning indictment. Uh, absolutely, Shirley, and, and I don't have any grandchildren as yet, uh, but I was born in the 60s and uh, someday I'm, I may, but even if I don't have grandchildren, I really, really care about the children of our planet. You know, I, I'm a midwife. One of the old Norse uh, interpretations of midwife is, uh, well, in fact, the direct translation in Danish is, is earth mother. And the Swedish word is is barnmushka, child mother. So uh, I have a deep, deep connection to ensure that I can play my part. And now that I'm in in a leadership role in the federal parliament of Australia, to to speak strongly for what we we must do to address climate change. Mm. Absolutely. Helen, We uh, on the podcast, we look at um, leadership for the next decade and the leadership styles of the leaders we're talking to. How do you lead? What's your leadership philosophy? Oh, I, I'm, I, th- I think I'm a very uh, collaborative leader. I'm I'm someone who who likes to bring a team together and hear people's points of view. Uh Ultimately, of course, as the leader of the team, I I need to make decisions, but I I like to make those decisions with uh, the buy-in, with the input uh, from plenty of people around the table. And uh, I'm also someone I think uh, perhaps a leadership book or a management guru might call me something of a laissez-faire leader, but uh, 
I, I like to have a team around me who I, I trust and uh, whose knowledge I, I respect and who I've recruited for their skills and expertise. And I very much uh, like to uh, let them get on with doing their work and bringing their recommendations to me. That's how I operate with my own team. Um, I have a fantastic team of people and, you know, I delegate them to do do a lot of work on my behalf to do the research and, and uh, to come back to me with recommendations. And that, that's how I lead. Um, uh, prior to my uh, prior to me becoming the member for Indi, I led up a research team with the University of Melbourne Department of Rural Health, and it was a very similar approach. We were we were very collaborative, and we'd bring our ideas together, talk them out, have the debate, and ultimately make a decision. And, and prior to that, of course, uh, prior to be, be, being an academic, I was an academic for twelve years. Prior to that, uh, working working on the wards as a nurse and a midwife and um, that's very much a team approach. So, you know, I'm very much moulded by those life experiences of teamwork. Do you ever doubt yourself? Oh, all the time. I, you know, I just, I do. And and so many people I know, when I tell them that, uh, they can't believe it, but it's true. I, I do doubt myself. Uh, I, I often... I will often go home at the end of the day and ask myself, oh, really, um, maybe that's not, maybe your approach is not the right one. Uh, maybe you got it wrong. Yeah, I do. I, I question myself constantly. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm trained scientifically, so I don't take things as a given. I certainly don't take um, my view as the only view. So, yeah, I have a very healthy level of self-doubt surely look i my i think um most people do i think unless you're a narcissist you've always got that voice in your head telling you you're not good enough or you can't do it when your voice rears its ugly head what do you do to stop it or to cope with it yeah um I often talk it out and those closest to me and probably my partner is the one who's heard heard the doubtful voice more than anyone and and I love him for it. He's been a very generous listener over many many years. So there's that. I you know I, I will tell him I'm feeling really worried about this, for example. Um, but I I'm I'm a nature lover, and you know I live on a I'm very lucky. You know I, I live on a lovely piece of land uh, wedged between the Ovens and King rivers. So it's it's a billabong country and and I walk out my back door and I see the most magnificent uh, billabong of the King River and and I love to get out there and and paddle around on a on an old canoe that that a friend gave us it's a really old canoe I love to look at the birds I love to walk in the bush I love to cross-country ski I love to ride my bike Uh, so nature really really helps me with self-doubt because I get out there and you know you look up at the stars and you think oh come on you know who are you what are you Significant, aren't you? Yeah, that really, really helps me. No question, it does. Yeah, and and you know what, uh, Shirley, I I love I love watching a bit of kind of trash telly. Oh, me too. Um, yeah, I love to lie on the couch late at night, and uh, I, I'm a big lover of Nordic noir. Um, I love seeing a movie. I stay up way too late, what late watching TV oh. and relaxing actually. Yes, I do exactly the same, and then regret it the next morning when yeah, I have to get too. up far too yeah. far yeah, too yeah, early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The um, one. Thank you for being so honest and open with your responses to those questions. We've tried to really normalise on this podcast how normal it is to doubt yourself and have those voices in our head. And I think somebody told me 
uh, a few years ago that there's a very fine line between narcissism and anxiety. And, you know, I think we all traverse that anxiety side um, so often. Um, not many of us are narcissists, but it's so easy to get caught in that vortex of uh, self-doubt. Absolutely, Shirley. I was on a panel last night with 40 young people who were uh, interviewing me and a couple of other local leaders about uh, how to engage with politics and how to engage with leaders. And and one young person said, well, you know, I I feel like I haven't got the skills or the language uh, to talk to people of authority about, you know, really complex issues. And oh, it, it it just, I gave her the example of how I felt when I first stepped into the shoes of becoming the member for Indi and I, you know, I got to my office in Parliament and I'd campaigned very strongly on the need for a Federal Integrity Commission and uh, I find myself becoming the member for Indi and I, you know, sat down in the big chair and you know, looked at my agenda that I was going to prosecute as, as a new member of Parliament uh, and I started examining uh, examining the legislation or uh, proposed legislation that had happened in the past about integrity commission, um, none of which, of course, have ever ever occurred. And uh, I then, uh, within a couple of weeks, I had five judges, retired judges, in my office in Canberra to to talk to me about an integrity commission. And I said to them, "Oh God, I feel <laughs> so intimidated and so." inadequate to be a member of parliament to prosecute this such complex legislation and you know what they were absolutely divine and they said Helen that's why we're here Um, you are our advocate and our champion and we're going to help you and and I just think it's so important to know that that you don't have to be a subject area expert in everything to be a champion for it you, what you need is those those experts to support you and help you, and and um, that's that's exactly been my experience with prosecuting uh, the need for a federal integrity commission. And and you know I'm a very different person to what I was two years ago in terms of my knowledge on that now, and I've got them to thank for that, and so many other people to thank for that. They've really given me that support and expertise and knowledge that I needed. And I know they're there at the end of the phone. And, and, you know, I said that to these young people, find those people to help you and they will. They they will be delighted to help you if you're trying to champion a cause that they're passionate about. And uh, that's such a good lesson for all of us because I think if we make ourselves vulnerable and say, actually, I don't know and I feel intimidated and I'm not comfortable in this position, there are always so many people who put up their hand to help. My career has been built on the back of, uh, on the shoulders of mentors and sponsors and supporters. And, you know, I wouldn't be here today if I wasn't, if I hadn't been open to that and hadn't asked. Mm. I think it's so true, Shirley. And I, and I often say, uh, being scared is no excuse not to do it. You know, you, you need to face your fear and then find the help you need to make it happen. So really acknowledging that vulnerability, actually taking seriously those anxieties that you have, um, taking seriously that little voice of doubt and then saying, well, how do I fix the doubt? How do I how do I get that team around me that's going to, going to help me, um, help me to get there? You're, absolutely you do. Absolutely. Helen, let's turn to the next decade. 
I have so many questions for you about the next decade. Firstly, what's in the next 10 years for Helen Haynes? Oh, gosh. You know what, Shirley? If if you asked me that at any decade in my life, I would have got it wrong. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not someone who cuts up my life into decades. I never have been. I, I've never really seen life... Uh, by age milestones or or um, or in a temporal kind of way, I, I feel in many ways I'm the same same person as a sixty year old as I was as a six six year old in, oh, in, a, in, a, same way. in a in a funny kind of way. I know that that's not true. Of course, I'm not the same person, uh, but I'm always really open to possibilities. And, uh, you know, the fact that I've lived most of my life uh, in a small country area, but managed to undertake uh, a doctorate in Sweden was, was is kind of a, a strange and fabulous thing um, that I would never have predicted for myself as a rural woman. Uh, the fact that I'm a member of parliament now, again, not something I would have predicted. So uh, none of those those things all have happened in the last, you know, last decade or a bit more than the last decade for the academic stuff. But for the next decade, uh, I'm running for parliament again. I've put my hand up to run again. So um, I'm hoping that at least part of the next decade I will remain the member for Indi. I, I see this next decade as a period where we can, we can take, steps in either direction when it comes to truly uh, learning and uh, innovating from this extraordinary experience that COVID has been for us. Uh, We can actually make some clear decisions about how we want the future to be. And for me, I want that future to be one where we are absolutely seriously now innovating and taking up the opportunities that are changing climate have, have brought and uh, leaping into this space of becoming, really becoming an exporter of renewable energy and a, an exporter of renewable energy in a way that sees a prosperity for regional communities that they have not experienced in many, many decades. I want to be a part of that. I want to I want to lead that in my own community and, I, and in my own small way. I've, I've tried to do that through the work I've done with community energy and uh, and the co-design work on uh, on locally owned energy. So I, I want to see that in the next decade. I think it can happen. Uh, I want to see um, I want to see the the honour and respect um, paid to uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, through through the Uluru Statement of the Heart. Um, the final thing that got me across the line when people tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Helen, would you consider would you consider um, putting your hand up as a candidate to follow Cathy?" The thing that got me across the line was uh, when someone said to me, Helen, I know how passionate you've been about justice for for our First Nations people. Wouldn't you like to be sitting in the parliament on the day that that happened? <laughs> There's nothing I would want more. And uh, if, if I can play my tiny part in that, um, if I can play a tiny part in, in that happening and to be sitting in the House of Representatives when that happened, that, that would be a wonderful thing to see this next decade. So there are a couple of things really, Shirley. Well, on reconciliation and on uh, constitutional recognition and voice to Parliament, Helen, you have so many people cheering you on uh, and on climate change and uh, we all hope that that day comes quickly um, and I hope we don't have to wait 10 years for it. 
You know, I think we owe such a huge debt of gratitude to our First Nations people in this country and we have this incredible culture, this shared culture and heritage that we get to share in every day that is a gift that they've given us through the Uluru Statement. Um, So we wish you all the very best of luck in that regard and thank you for joining us today and for your openness and authenticity. Thank you so much, Shirley. I've loved having this conversation with you. It was so refreshing to talk to Helen Haynes, a genre of politician we are seeing so much more of and need to see so much more of. She's dedicated, open, authentic and so keen to make a difference in Canberra. I also loved the fact that she brings a diverse perspective to her work as an MP, not only as a woman, but with a health background and a regional perspective that focuses on farmers and our Indigenous heritage. It is so vital for the future of our country that we have more women like Helen in Parliament at all levels. Thank you so much for joining us again for this episode of the Leadership Lessons podcast. This episode was produced by the talented Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. We would love to hear from you. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. There is nothing better than reading the Women's Agenda newsletter with a cup of coffee at 11 o'clock every morning. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Bye. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.